0: join me in opening up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Continuing this morning with the Hornet's Nest um, sermon that uh, we started last week. This is part two, All right. So if you weren't here last week, I'll try to hit some of the highlights so that you won't be lost, but to really get the full picture, you'll need to uh, retrieve that podcast from last week can do that easily from our website, or if you get our weekly email, there are several uh, convenient ways to get to that. We've arrived at chapter 5 in Galatians, which is the pinnacle of Paul's argument in this letter that he's writing, and to remind you of some of the context, which I think is important here, he's writing to young Christians, to new Christians, right? Uh, These folks came to faith when Paul preached the gospel and planted churches in their area, and these folks were Gentiles, right? They, they weren't Jews. They weren't familiar with the Jewish religion and all the background that it contained. They just simply heard the good news, and the Holy Spirit opened their hearts, and they placed their faith and their trust in Jesus, and as a result were saved. But then along came some Jews, some, some Judaizers, as they have been known who came to these new baby Christians and said, you're not really saved. Not completely, not, not yet, but you will be just as soon as you add your obedience to the law and become like us. And so Paul hears of this, he's greatly angered by this. And he writes to emphatically say, no, absolutely not. The gospel I preach to you, the true gospel of Jesus, is a law-free gospel. And so he expounds on that freedom from the law in the verses that we again look at today. Verses, by the way, that don't come to us in a vacuum. These verses are not isolated from the rest of Scripture, but they're best understood in light of all the rest of Scripture. And you would do well. In fact, I urge you this morning to remember Acts 17.11. That reference is in your outline there in the worship folder. Remember Acts 17.11 and be like those who Luke is talking about in that verse It says that they received Paul's message with great eagerness and that they examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. So I urge you, approach these verses, approach this message in the same way. Examine the Scriptures to see how these verses line up with the rest of the Scriptures and if what I am saying and my explanation of them jives with the rest of Scripture. I'd like to ask you to stand now, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 5, the first six verses. The very Word of God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. May God bless the preaching of His inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Let's pray for the help that we so desperately need. Oh, Father, would you come again in grace? And Would you grant understanding? Would you especially grant how we might see how these verses are connected to the whole of Scripture? Might we see and understand our, our freedom? Might we see and understand rightly the place of obedience in the life of a Christian? Would you grant to us that we would be changed deeply, that our hearts would be changed and not just our minds, not just our intellect. Come, O gracious God, and make all of this possible through Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, I tried to make much of the freedom that Paul mentions in verse 1. And in doing so, I labeled it and I called it scandalous freedom. And a good question came up in the small group that I participated in last Sunday night. What's that word mean? What's that word scandalous mean? We, We think we know what it means. What's it mean? And so several of us pulled out our smartphones and we looked it up. And here's what we saw. Scandalous. Causing general Public outrage by a perceived offense against morality or law. How perfect! How perfect that our freedom from the law would cause outrage. Morality is now in question. The law and our obedience to it hangs in the balance, it causes outrage. It wounds our pride. This notion of freedom and being free from the law wounds our pride, especially if we think that we've been doing a pretty pretty good job with the law. Thank you very much. We've been doing all right, haven't we? It wounds us. It wounds our our sense of pride in being good, moral, law-abiding citizens of God's kingdom. I caused some outrage last week because of some of the provocative things that I said. Like, because of the freedom we have in Christ, because of the freedom that we have from the law, the law has no power over us. It has no binding authority If we're in Christ, we're under no obligation to obey the law. Scandalous. I know. Another good question that came up in our group last Sunday night is, if we're talking about freedom from the law, which law? Which law are we talking about? And and that's a great question. Because the presenting issue here in Galatians, we saw last week, is, is circumcision. And so that's a part of what gets labeled as, labeled as the ceremonial law. So these, these laws from the Old Testament that foreshadowed, that pointed to the coming of Christ and the work of Christ. A great example of those would be the, all the sacrifices. Right? All the blood that gets shed on the altar in the Old Testament pointed to foreshadowed the need for and the eventual actual coming of Christ and Him being our once and for all final perfect sacrifice. Jesus giving Himself for us. So it would no longer be appropriate for us to slaughter any animals up here. Highly offensive, in fact, to the finished work of Christ, to the, to the once-for-all, final, perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish. So those are ceremonial laws, but, but there also, there's also moral law. And I'm being a little over-simplistic in, in this two-category classification, but I think for our purposes this morning, simple is good. Okay? The moral law, where, where God says, do these things over here, don't do these things over here, and do and don't do because that lines up with who I am. Right? That lines up with, with my character and my will. These are the things that bring me glory. These are the things that don't. Right? And so, of course, the, the, the Ten Commandments is a good uh, embodiment of, of the moral law. All right, so two different categories, simplistic though they may be, ceremonial on one hand, which includes circumcision, moral on the other hand, and so when Paul says, and I've given you the references here in your, in your outline, but when Paul says in, in Romans 8 and Romans 10 and Galatians 2, he says things like that we're free from the law. He talks about an end of the law. He talks about himself, in this very letter, even dying to the law. When he says these things, he doesn't make a distinction between Ceremonial and moral. He just says the law. All of it. I died to it. We're free from it. What he's saying is that when it comes to our being saved and our staying saved, Our obedience to the law is not involved. Our obedience to the law doesn't get us saved. Our obedience to the law doesn't keep us saved. Now here is where understandably some objections bubble to the surface. No, wait a minute. I think Christians are obligated to obey the law. It just doesn't seem right to say otherwise. If that's you, let me get you to do a couple of things for me. Answer a a couple of questions that I might pose. The first is this, if you say that we are obligated as Christians to obey the law, then I want you to finish this sentence for me. If you feel like, man, we are obligated to obey the law, then finish this sentence or else what? Make yourself finish that sentence. right? we become unsaved we we lose by our lack of obedience what was obtained without our obedience no we're saved by grace alone through faith alone that's the biblical understanding of salvation Let me ask you another question, a similar question, right? If you say, man, I just, obedience is required of the Christian. Then how about these questions? Well, okay, how much? How how much is enough to keep that thing that you put in the blank in the last question from happening? Right? How often? This obedience that's required. And of what quality does it have to be in order to be enough? Now, now I understand that this causes angst for some of you. For some of you, I hope that this just blows your paradigm of, of what it is to be a Christian. I hope that it does. I understand that when I say Christian, you don't have to obey. That you want to say, gosh, isn't that cheap grace? And, and yes, actually it is. And it's a good thing that it's cheap because we can't afford anything that's not absolutely free that we sang about earlier. <laughs> if it cost anything at all. I was reading this week, somebody explained if it cost anything at all, it would remain on the shelf and untouched by us. You, you, you object, you say, right, if you tell people they don't have to obey, then they won't. That's as much as you're going to get to bring you up to speed from last week, because I want to get into these verses especially the the ones that we didn't touch as much last week, really kind of about in the middle of verse 4 onward. And, And it relates to what I've just been saying, because perhaps you've known someone, perhaps you've been someone, who has taken this freedom for which Christ set us free. This beautiful, scandalous freedom, and they've abused it. Or you've abused it. Gone off and done stupid things. Fallen, as we see in verse 4. Perhaps you've seen folks who have fallen from grace by abusing their freedom. And you say, that's what's going to happen if you say these crazy things. That's what's going to happen if you tell people they don't have to obey. Now, a very tiny rabbit trail here, but one that I hope is worth taking, right? That some people foolishly decide to abuse their freedom. Doesn't mean that that freedom's not real. That that freedom's not true. All it means is that it can be abused. And abusing freedom is not a good thing. Right? We do not want, I'll go on the record, right, for Trinity Presbyterian Church, right, for me as a minister of the gospel, right. we do not want people abusing their freedom. It's something we want to avoid. But unfortunately, the normal way of trying to avoid it is taking that freedom and toning it down a bit, tempering it. Watering it down. We don't have to do that. We could take the scandalous freedom and we could trust that Jesus knew what he was doing when he set us free. And we could press into that freedom all the more vigorously. We could go all in with our freedom and watch what happens. End of rabbit trail, back to verse 4. We're afraid people will abuse their freedom and fall away from grace. But you know what? When Paul mentions in verse 4, those who have fallen away from grace, Right. when we think, oh, they've fallen from grace, we're thinking, oh, they started drinking too much. They're sleeping around. They took all the rules and they just threw them out the window. But verse 4 here, who is Paul saying has fallen from grace? It's those who took all the rules and doubled down on them. It's those who took their religious rule-keeping and And cranked it up several notches. Who went ultra moral. And you'll remember from last week if you were here. With this example of circumcision. Relying on something that you can do. Rather than getting you closer to your Savior. Cuts you off. From your Savior. And so that's what falling away from grace means here. Not falling away from the rules, but falling away from your Savior because you have substituted rules for Him. You have fallen away from the source, from the fount of grace. Right. So so here's the realm of grace over here. Here's the, the land that you live in in order to experience all the grace of God in the freedom for which Christ has set us free. But some folks have decided to move and live and dwell in a different land. The land of relying on self. Those have fallen away from grace. And so obviously that's something that none of us wants is to fall away from grace. So how do we stay near? What does it look like to stay near to grace? And verse 5 is going to get us there. Here's how we stay near. Here is, in fact, how we do grow and change. Here's how we actually do come to the place where we will obey. I hope that you don't hear me saying in all of this that I think obey is a four-letter word. That it's not a part of the Christian life. That is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying, and this is so important, is that for the Christian, obedience is always effect and never cause. Obedience is always the wagon that's being pulled by the horse of our faith and our trust. And that order is never reversed. That is the consistent message of the Bible. And we're going to see that verse 5 bears that out. Look at the parts of this verse in verse 5. Through the Spirit, by faith, we work for our righteousness. No, wait. We don't work for our righteousness. We wait. It is right and good that some of you have a little angst within you when I say you don't have to obey. Because you know deep down that there's some change that ought to be taking place. you, You know that there is some growth that's supposed to happen somewhere along the line. It is right and good to expect growth and change. The Galatians were expecting something to happen. That's part of why they fell prey to this false teaching that they did, of of adding their works to the equation. They thought, this must be it. This must be how the growth and change is supposed to take place. Paul's very clear, even just at the end of chapter 4 where we were recently, the goal of being a Christian, the end game, is that we'd be conformed to Christ. We are to grow and change. But the $64,000 question is, how does that growth and change come about? We are hardwired from the womb to think that we need to work for that growth and change. To think that we need to obey our way there, to be committed, to be disciplined enough to get our way there. And then God will conform us to Christ as a reward for our hard work and our commitment and our obedience. But that's not what the Bible sets out as the way to real growth and change. No, that's not it at all. Verse 5 spells it out. It's not working. It's waiting. We wait for our righteousness. We wait for our growth and change. To wait for something... This concept involves our our receiving it. If you're going to wait for something, you're going to receive it. Our growth is given to us as freely as our salvation is given to us. For some reason, it's easier for us to grasp that we are saved... By grace alone through faith alone. But for some reason it is so much more difficult to wrap our minds around the fact that we also grow by grace alone through faith alone. This is in fact the work of the Spirit there at the beginning of verse 5. Do you remember all the Spirit's work from eons ago when we were talking about what it means to be born again. All the things that the Spirit does in that part of it, we saw in Jeremiah 31, is that the Holy Spirit takes God's law and writes it, not on our wills, not on our minds, but on our hearts. We're going to get to that more in a minute. Just hang on to that little bit for now. So the Spirit's involved, are continuing to trust Jesus, our faith is involved, and we wait for our righteousness, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now I've mentioned before that hope is a word that somewhere along the lines of the English language is just totally screwed up and changed the meaning. Because when we say hope, we're talking about wishful thinking. Right? I hope we win the game. I hope we have good weather on our vacation. Wishful thinking. We don't know. It might rain, it might not rain. We might win, we might lose. We don't know. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is not something we're uncertain about, but something we are certain and sure about. We can bank on it. We can bank on the fact that the Spirit, through our continued trusting in Jesus, will bring about our righteousness. Not if we work for it, but if we wait for it. As we eagerly wait for it. We need a whole other message on what that means and what that looks like, to eagerly wait for it. Because it's not entirely passive. For now, we need to get to verse 6 because in verse 6 is the linchpin that holds this whole thing together, that makes this whole thing work for our growth and our change and our righteousness and our obedience to come through the Spirit, verse 5, by faith. And then verse 6 shows us the end result, how we are changed by grace. And it's in that last phrase in verse 6, faith working through love. The only thing that counts in this whole equation of our growth and our change and our obedience. See, saying that we don't have to obey, y'all, you know, that is not a callous disregard for the law and obedience, but it is an insistence that the law and our obedience are understood rightly. See, here's the little progression that we need to follow. And that I think these verses and the whole of Scripture bears out. We will obey. As followers of Christ, we will obey when we love to obey. And we will love to obey because we love Him. That's the biblical model for our obedience. That's putting the cart behind the horse where it belongs. That's the right ordering things. We will obey when we love to obey, and we will love to obey because we love him. Jesus was very, very plain in John 14. And you might think at first blush that what I said last week and what I've repeated this week is in contradiction to this, but it's not, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? Obeying is loving. Failing to obey is a failure to love. Right? It, it's, it's the love that produces, that drives the obedience. Y'all, but even here we've got to be careful. Right? Even here we've got to be careful Because it would be easy to come away from this verse in John 15 uh, with guilt and shame and condemnation. Uh, Clearly, I don't love Jesus as I ought. Or else I'd be obeying more. And we can turn love for Jesus into another work. Into another law that needs to be obeyed. And we start mustering up our energy... psyching ourselves up. All right, we can do this. I'm going to love Jesus more. And, And you can't muster up love for Jesus. You can't. So how does it come about that we love Him more? So that we might obey Him more. How does that come about? We wait for it we eagerly wait for it we eagerly wait for it by thinking long and hard about how we only love him 1 john 4:19 because he loved us first we dwell on that We we focus on the uh, the unconditional and and the primary love of Jesus. that He loved us first, and He did it when we were His enemies, Ephesians 2. He did it while we were still deep in our sin, when we were at our worst, Romans 5. And see, coming to know more and more. Coming to be convinced more and more that he loved me first when I was completely unlovable, and that he continues to love me despite my ongoing breaking faith from 1 Chronicles 2. That he loves me still. Right? Thinking on that, meditating on that, dwelling on that, what does that do? That fans the flickering flame of my puny little love for Him and causes it to grow. And it changes me. It transforms me from the inside out. Right? It is it is being transformed and changed by love that is the linchpin in all of this. It holds it all together. So I think about this in my, in my marriage, when I am more often than I would like to admit a jerk to my wife. Please don't Amen. And sometimes, understandably so, she responds to me like the jerk that I'm being. But y'all, there are these other times that she loves me instead. Without condition. Without expectation. And I can tell you that in that moment, my heart melts. And in that moment, I long to be a better husband. I grieve over the fact that I'm a jerk to her. And I long to love her in return. Y'all, that's a picture. When we think about following Jesus of being conformed to His image, of coming to the place where we love to obey because we love Him. We only truly love Him when we come to know how He has loved us. And that changes us from the inside out. It is the most powerful thing in the world, and friends, this is how we grow and we change, through the power of the Spirit, our continued faith in Jesus, and our experience of His amazing unconditional love for us. That changes us from the inside out. It works itself out in our love for Him, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it works itself out in our love for our neighbors. It's a wonderful thing But let me just warn you this, it is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the faint of heart because to trust that Jesus' way, that that his way of freedom can actually lead to growth and transformation is at times scary. It's scary because it is out of our control. We are waiting for him to show up. And we can't control that. It's scary because it's out of our control. It's messy because let's be honest, some of us will abuse that freedom. And the temptation will be great when we see it happening in our lives and in the lives of others to concede defeat, to start watering things down because we don't want to deal with folks not acting right. The quote that's on the front of your bulletin is actually just a part of a longer quote. And this has been so helpful to me because it's put in some very, I think, good words what I've been feeling for a long time about this. This author is responding to someone who is saying, in essence, we need to tone this freedom business down a bit. Because we live in a culture that is just absolutely restraint free. And the last thing they need to hear about is more freedom. And so here's what uh, Dane Ortland says about this, about how we would avoid that problem. One way is to balance gospel grace with exhortations to holiness. As if both need equal airtime, lest we fall into legalism on one side, neglecting grace, Or we fall into antinomianism on the other side, neglecting holiness, neglecting the law. The other way, which I believe is the right and biblical way, is so to startle this restraint-free culture with the gospel of free justification that the functional justifications, the things that we turn to to make life work, of human approval, moral performance... Or on the other hand, sexual indulgence or big bank accounts. All those things begin to lose their vice-like grip on human hearts. And their emptiness is exposed in all its fraudulence. It sounds backward, but the, the path to holiness is through and not beyond the grace of the gospel. Because only undeserved grace can truly melt and transform the heart. The solution to restraint-free immorality is not morality. The solution to immorality is the free grace of God, grace so free that it will be misheard by some as a license to sin with impunity. The route by which the New Testament exhorts radical obedience is not by tempering grace, but by driving it home all the more deeply. So no doubt it's scary to be out of control. It is messy. It's also frustrating because the way that this is described will always take longer than trying to manufacture it for ourselves. Of simply trying to be good little boys and girls. But despite how messy And scary and frustrating. And how upside down this might seem to you. This is Jesus' way. This is Jesus' way. May He give us the grace to trust His way. To eagerly wait for the Spirit through our continued trusting in Jesus. To bring about our righteousness, our obedience. As faith works itself out in love. Let's pray. Father, take your word. Take Jesus' way of freedom. The Spirit's working in our hearts. Convincing us of the love of Jesus that he has for us. And change us. Bring us to the place where we will obey because we do love. Lord, help us by your grace to keep that in the right order. To keep the cause and the effect very distinct and very separate from one another in our minds and in our hearts. That we might not try to rob from Jesus what he's already accomplished for us in the gospel. Help us in all these things.